I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I don't like that old business about the characters tell me where to go, because I think that that makes writing into something magic. But that said, I go very, very far in and love these people, am these people, inhabit them, realize that every person I write about is some aspect of myself. One of the great things about doing this podcast is that I get to talk with some of the most interesting people in the world all about my obsession. I think you could say that at the heart of communication is empathy the ability to take on the perspective of another person. Novelists are especially good at this, and I think there are few novelists as good at it as Ann Patchett. She's my guest on this episode. I talked with Ann, the beloved and award-winning writer, at our studio in Manhattan. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about empathy, because it seems to me empathy is at the heart of communicating and relating. Mm Mm-hmm. And you write these amazingly engaging novels, which fit right into the theory that a lot of people have about empathy, that a good way to develop your empathy is to read novels. I agree with that. I say that all the time, because it really is putting you into someone else's skin in a way that nonfiction and history doesn't always do. Um, that I think with fiction, you have a more empathetic experience. It's almost like acting. You're going into the character. You're going into the character's life when you're reading or when you're writing. You kind of have to, I imagine, you kind of have to allow the reader to take on the perspective of the character. Uh, uh, otherwise, not only is empathy not going to happen, they're not going to be very interested in the story. Is that, is that, does that follow what you think? Well, the thing is, you you want the reader to have empathy for many different characters, Mm -hmm. maybe even all the characters. So they're not necessarily going to be getting into the point of view of all the characters. I don't know. There's an interesting way in which empathy is also a real weakness of mine, because I think that my biggest flaw as a writer is my inability to write villains. 
because <laughs> I, it's really true. Really? Uh, you why? Can, why is that? Uh, because I empathize, because I have characters who I think are going to be the villains. And then as I'm writing them and really thinking about their life, I always wind up having a softness or a sympathy, no matter how bad they are. Well, it's interesting because that completely parallels my challenge when I'm playing a villain as an actor. And I don't, I don't have a problem with it. I, I just try to see the world from the villain's point of view. Mm-hmm. And I want what the villain wants. I want what he wants, and I don't feel I'm really ready to play it until I not only know that I want what he wants, but I feel I'm entitled to get it. Wow. Wow, that's good. But do you wind up having sympathy for the villain? Do you wind up thinking, well, you know, his mother was awful to him, or it was because he didn't have friends in college, that's why he turned out to be so villainous? Well, I might I might have those thoughts, but my, my reaction as the person, as the, as the villain, would be, so, damn it, I'm entitled to get what I want. Look at the mother I had. Okay. You know? All right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it doesn't make me uh, hold back in any way. It just makes me uh, revel in being able to do things they won't let me do in real life. You know, like kill people, steal their money. But I think that actually means, in all seriousness, that you're a better actor than I am a writer. No, think, no, no, really, no, no. hear me out. Because I, I do think that what happens with me is I become too sympathetic. Um, and and I, I lose my edge because I am treating my villain tenderly. And, okay. and often I'll write a book and I'll think, okay, now I really have a villain in this one. And I'll go out on book tour and people will come up and they'll say, oh, that character, oh, that was my favorite. He well, was the one I loved. Oh, but, the, you know, the, as um, a writer said a few decades ago, the snake has the best lines. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that. So people do tend to like them because the villain, I mean, I was kidding before when I said they won't let me kill people in real life, but everybody has murderous feelings. And if they're reading a character who convincingly gets away with it, I think they kind of are drawn to it a little bit. Not, not that they want to emulate the behavior, but it, it's, uh, if you can be convinced of it, it's kind of freeing. Yeah, I think that that's, that's really true. I just don't ever get that far. I mean, my idea of, uh, not even my idea of villainy, but, but the manifestation of villainy in my books has more to do with a woman who just bluntly speaks her mind. <laughs> <laughs> that's not much of that's heroic. That's as far as I seem to get. <laughs> but Someone I, whose manners lapse from yeah, time to right. time. Wrong fork at dinner. That's right. <laughs> Watch me go. <laughs> but you know, you raise an interesting question about um, empathy. I I try to make a distinction. I don't know if you agree with this between empathy and compassion. I don't think empathy necessarily leads to compassion. Because if empathy is simply understanding what your point of view is, where you're coming from, what you're going through, what you're feeling, that doesn't mean I automatically have your best interests at heart and feel, uh, feel your pain in a way that makes me want to alleviate your pain. Because Correct. there are interrogators who know exactly what you're going through and use it against you. There are, there are salesmen who do the same thing. There are politicians who do that. Yes, I think that's I think that's very true. I don't think that when I'm writing, 
I sit down and make those distinctions, though. You just get drawn into sympathy. I just get pulled into it. Um, Years and years ago, I read the Joyce Carol Oates novel called Blonde, which was about Marilyn Monroe. And I reviewed it. I never review books. I haven't reviewed a book in 15 years. And back then, I did maybe once every two years. So I only read this book because I was reviewing it. I think it was eight or 900 pages from the point of view of Marilyn Monroe. And I actually... It's a kind of novel that I hate um, when someone takes a real person and then writes a fictionalized account of their life. So if I'm going to read an Uh, 800-page book about Marilyn Monroe, I'd rather read a biography than I would a novel that was making uh, creative assumptions and leaps. Mm -hmm. But it was an amazing experience because I truly felt by the end that I had been stuffed into that dress and those shoes, and I was having to look at the world through those false eyelashes. And uh, I really realized the power that fiction has in putting a person into someone else's skin. And it was empathetic. Um, And I don't know that it was compassionate, because I don't know that I felt tenderly necessarily towards her in the end. Well, she appropriated the public figure of the cartoon of Marilyn Monroe, but then filled it with her own humanity, it sounds like. But it was a very, very harsh book. Um, But an an interesting experience and sort of, um, you know, a fork in the road artistically for me where I, I saw the power of really putting the reader into a character. How far do you go with... The characters. So many writers say the characters tell me where the where the story is going. It sounds to me like you know what the story is going to be, and the characters don't talk back to you. Is yeah, it? that's true. I, I I don't like that old business about the characters tell me where to go because I think that that makes writing into something magic, mm. and magic excludes people. That means you either have the magic, you either have the ability to hear voices in your head, or you don't. If you learn how to write and how to do the work and you treat it like a job, then it is available to everyone. So I'm, I'm a big believer in dispelling that particular myth. But I, that said, I, I go very, very far in and love these people, am these people, inhabit them, uh, realize that every person I write about is some aspect of myself. My problem with novels mostly is that I I get so much connection with reality when I read nonfiction that when I read a novel a good deal of the time I get frustrated because you can just tell they're making it up. Hmm. Oh, yeah, you don't want to have that feeling. No, and I don't get that with you when your scenes are convincing it. I believe they happen to somebody somewhere sometime or or could easily. They're plausible. You know, part of the trick for me is I do my research after I'm finished writing the book. What? Yes. But how does that work? Um, it works really well. Write it wrong. Um, for example, in my first novel, Patron Saint of Liars, there is a scene in which there are two young uh, Marine recruits 
at Paris Island right after Pearl Harbor in training and and they're horsing around and one of them accidentally shoots the other one. I wrote that scene when I was probably 26 or 27 years old and I knew nothing about anything that was going on in that scene. I didn't know about Paris Island, I didn't know about Marines, I didn't I knew a little bit about guns. I I mean the whole thing. I made it up. <sighs> and then at the end I went back and I did my research. I find that it, and and actually I got an awful lot of it right because if you do the research first, you learn a bunch of facts and then you're very proud of yourself and you want to put the facts in uh, to show people that you did your homework. Yeah. Um you want to work a really interesting fact in that has no business being in yeah. there. And you get completely misled from the emotion of the scene and from the characters. Also, the only thing research teaches you is how much more research you have to do. <laughs> I know. So, you know, I, At a certain point, you have to say, I'm, I'm just going to glide through with my in, in, intuition on this. Yeah. But of course, for acting, that's got to be completely different. You have to do your research up front. I don't know. Not always. It really. I approach. I'm. I'm a, a true uh, amateur. I think. Mm. I, I approach every acting job with the challenge of creating a whole new system of acting, whole method, mm. pretty much, because there's a different kind of a problem each time if you're playing a real person who once lived. I played a character in the picture called the Aviator. And I, I wanted. I, he was That's a what real, I was just thinking. About. He was a real senator. Yeah. And they had said to me, "You're perfect for this part. No one can play this except you." And then they showed me a picture of me. It was the ugliest person I had ever seen, <laughs> seen in my life. And then I found out more about him. He was even uglier as a person. And uh, I, that was a, a case of figuring out why I was entitled to get what he wanted, which was the destruction of. Uh, Howard Hughes, and I and it seemed perfectly reasonable to me at a certain point. And that, at that point, I didn't need to do any more research because I was, I had I had the the force and the energy that he had. What I remember about that your part in that movie, I remember the fish. Oh, the fish! The fish. When That's I, I offer him fish of the whole movie. Those fish are what stick in my mind. That you was know, a that, great scene. I loved that scene. And uh, I improvised a line in that scene where I say to him, uh, we just beat, Ger you want to go to war against the government, we just beat Germany and Japan. Who the hell are you? <laughs> and they kept it in the movie. And it reminded me of when I was a young actor, I used to improvise lines in rehearsal that would wind up in the play. Yeah. And it it gave me confidence about being a writer because I had always wanted to be a writer. How does that work? If you improvise a great line in the play and then later on they publish the play, do they put your great line in there? Not uh, they, that you get credit. but they, No, they tend to because I have to say they're pretty good lines. <laughs> <laughs> but what in, interests me about you and improvisation is I find you so improvisational and able to go in any direction in an interview. You've interviewed me. I've interviewed you. Uh, it's as though you're comfortable in an improvisatory path. 
do you, do, do you write that way? How much improvisation is in your writing? How much is thought out in advance? Well, it all depends on how you look at it. Depends mm-hmm. on how you do the math. It, there's a way in which everything is planned out. I am on page 174 of a book that I'm writing. It has three sections. Every section will have 100 pages. Mm. And when I go back and finish up at the end, probably every section will get about 10 pages long because I will do things like put leaves on the trees and the sun in the sky. Those things, I, the little details, the color of the sweater, I never put those things in the first time. Oh, that's interesting. But I'll, why, I'll go, why, why do you wait? Well, just because I'm... I get very intense and focused. I mm. don't put in the niceries and the the flipperies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I know exactly what's going to happen in this book. I feel like a difference between what I'm doing sometimes and what other people are doing. I don't think that I am a particularly interesting writer, sentence to sentence. I read all of this contemporary writing. Everything I read is what's going to come out six months from now. And I get so excited about books that I'm reading, novels. And the writing is amazing. And the characters are great. The ideas are huge. And it goes nowhere. Because the person knows how to write, but they don't know how to write a novel. They they don't tell a story. They don't tell a story, which is a very old-fashioned concept. Plot is out of fashion. Yeah. But I love plot. When I... When I read a book that's just an unraveling of the writer's imagination, and I'm treated to one imagination, one example of imagination after another, if I'm not led along by story, I lose interest. But I wanted to read this wonderful passage. It really struck me. It's in Bel Canto when the guy sits down at the piano. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't read the whole book, if this is all you read, you would you'd be struck by the immediacy of it and the the poetry of plain talk. It's not poetic, but it hits you like poetry it does. It does me anyway. He sat down at the piano to play and thought about his family. He could imagine them sleeping. And he put that into the nocturne, his son's steady breathing, his wife clutching her pillow with one hand. All of the tenderness he felt for them went into the keys. He touched them as if, as if he meant not to wake them. That's great stuff. That's nice. And, 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 and you know, I have zero memory of that. You no could kidding. have said... I want to read you this passage from Moby Dick. And I would have said, wow, that's really lovely. <laughs> well, I'm glad you like it. I wrote it. Good. <laughs> Good job, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, I mean, I'm so struck by the, the evocation of a state of mind in pure words. But it's, to me, it's like reading nonfiction because it is the exact experience. But you can't convey that in nonfiction the way you did through through the, the, the really smart use of words. Well, thanks. When we come back, Anne talks about whether most men prefer fiction or nonfiction. And it turns out I'm a real man. Right after this.
When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a Remax agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid. I'm Alan Alda. And now back to my conversation with Ann Patchett. Do you find when people come into your bookstore, which is called Parnassus? Yes. And when they come into your bookstore, do the women mainly buy the novels? It's not just my bookstore. It's everybody's bookstore. Something like 80% of all fiction is purchased by women. Mm. And the in our store, the fiction is on the left and the door is on the left. So when you come in, you come in straight into fiction. The nonfiction is on the right. And couples come in and they just divide <laughs> all day long. The women go left to the fiction. The men go right to the nonfiction. And, and I don't know what that's about. I have had men say to me so often, well, I don't want to waste my time reading things that aren't true. If I have time to read... I want to read something that's going to teach me something that's going to be true. Yeah. Whereas women say, I want to be taken over by a story. I want to be swept away. I want to be taken out of my life. And there is, I think, a lot of research that indicates that women tend to have more talent in the area of empathy than most men do. On average, there are some men, of course, you know, and some women who are outliers and don't conform to any stereotype. But is, is that your impression, too, that women tend to be more empathic? I think so. And, and I think that men tend to be more analytical. Yeah. Again, I, how am I using my time? I want to use my time to learn. I'm not going to learn from a story. I want to have fun. I, wanna, I want life. You know, this show is called Clear and Vivid. And the vivid part is important it's not just it's not just not enough to be clear it seems to me it has to be alive i have to know that life is taking place otherwise i'm not going to remember it i'm not going to let it in and that's what you do i love that can you do you think you think you can teach a writer to write can you make can you, how do you, can you help a writer be better I, I know you you make the attempt do you do you are you successful at it and how do you do it well i don't teach i i mean i have but it's been a mighty long time ago and i didn't do much of it i can teach anyone how to be a better writer yes i can i can how do you do it because well, it's one but, of the hardest things i've ever tried in my life when i produced a television show I had the hardest time getting them to write at, at their best level well it's it's a it's a trick answer i can teach anyone how to be a better writer i can show you how to take out the extra words i can show you how to do dialogue uh, I can show you the importance of plot. What I can't teach you is how to have something to say. 
Mm. I cannot teach you how to have compassion or an interest in mankind or the ability to listen carefully and be engaged. That seems unteachable. I had a teacher in college, Grace Paley, who I adored, and she was the only person I've ever met in the world who actually tried to teach people how to be better people in order to write. How did she do it? She uh, took us to a lot of protest marches. Oh, really? Uh, USA CIA <laughs> out of Grenada. That was my college experience in writing. Um, but this idea constantly of what's important. If your story was up for workshop and she was supposed to mark it up and discuss it in class, but she instead went and worked at the homeless shelter the night before and didn't get to marking up your story. Well, that's the way it was, because there were things in life that were more important than your story. Mm. And that was the lesson. And we were grumpy as all get out and hurt feelings. But her lesson over and over again is, your art comes from your community. You must attend to your community ceaselessly, that there was a single voice in which people spoke. You could not be a mother in one voice and a friend in another and an artist in another. You were only one person. So you were only as good, as valuable as what you were putting out in all these different areas of your life. Mm. That was a person who was teaching me how to write. That's really an interesting Interesting idea. What what we do at the Center for Communicating Science, interestingly, is help scientists and doctors communicate in a more personal way, in a more clear and vivid way, by starting with improvisation, so that they learn through the improvisational exercises what it's like to connect more deeply to one other person, looking them in the eye, taking cues from their face, from their tone of voice and responding to that rather than responding to some thought in their head so that the communication is not a one-way street, me telling you stuff, it's me responding to you, knowing whether you're getting it or not and that kind of thing. And, that, and that's similar to what you're talking about because the attention is on the other person, not on you. So I want to tell you a story. Yeah. So I interviewed you when your last book came out a little less than a year ago in Nashville. And ever since then, I have conducted all of my interviews in what I call the Alda Method. So <laughs> I, I interview people a lot. There are a lot of writers who say, I'll come to the bookstore only if Anne will interview me. Mm. So this this happens, and I'm on stage interviewing people Often. And I still read all the material and I still make my notes and I write down my questions and then I leave them and I don't bring them on stage with me. So I have ideas about what I'm interested in. It's not that I haven't done my homework, but I am no longer holding the note cards, asking a question, waiting for you to finish answering mm. and then asking you another question. You, you really have completely changed my understanding of how to do an interview, and you've made me much better. So the key for me is to not bring the paper onto the yeah, stage. So you, I can be in the green room and look over it one last yeah. time, 
because I do have this old Catholic schoolgirl thing of being prepared. I want to make sure that I'm prepared. I want to be the best possible host when I'm interviewing someone. Uh, so it's scary for me to leave the questions back there. Well, I, I agree with you that it's it's helpful to to write down what your thoughts are. What it helps you focus. Sure. This is the person I'm going to be talking to. But then when you talk to them, then I think it's really important to talk to them and not talk to the piece of paper in your pocket. Yes. Yes. I interviewed Tom Hanks in uh, D.C. back in the fall. And I did that. I read his book. I wrote my questions down. I left. And we're standing backstage being introduced. You know, that moment where you're behind the curtain and the introduction (laughs) is going on and on and on. And I turned around and I said... So I do this the Alan Alda method. I, uh, I don't have any questions for you. We're just going to wing it. And he said, oh, that's brilliant. And we get on stage and he says, she's completely unprepared. She has no questions for me. And it was such a funny interview because right before we went on, he said to the people who were hosting, they said, you know, wrap it up in 45 minutes or an hour, and that's what we do. And he said, well, what if we're having fun? <sighs> and the woman said, well, we paid for the theater for the whole night. If you're having fun, you can stay as long as you want. And so after an hour, I said, you know, how are you? Do you want to keep going? He said, no, I'm still having fun. We stayed on stage for two hours. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Just talking. If I had come out with an agenda, it part of the agenda would have been to wrap it up at 8 o'clock. <laughs> right. But those people who came into the theater that night got an amazing show because we didn't have any idea where we were going. And it was improv. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it brings – one of the things improv does and, why, and probably why you had such a good experience with Tom that night was that improv brings out who you really are. You're the vulnerable you. You're, you're, not, you're not usually not putting out – the you that you reserve for company. Right. This is the family you. This is you, the you that is has always been you since you were eight years old. And, and that comes out in improv. And that's the most attractive part of you. It's the most human part of you. And it's more possible to have fun with two yous there than two uh, special strangers. But boy, is it easier to do it with somebody who's been trained in improv. Yeah, that's true. Which Tom Hanks had a big, big background in improv. Was he with the Second City uh, or was one of those improv companies, do you know? No, no. He was like community college in Los Angeles. Oh, oh. I mean, really rock bottom little improv groups in classrooms and no audience. But that was his training. That's where he came from. I really think eventually improv will have contributed so much to the culture without people really knowing it. So many fine actors have an, an, an improvisational background. And the way acting is taught is so different, but the way it filters out into the rest of the culture is sort of under the radar, but there are a lot of companies that teach improvisation to make people in business, in banks, in other kinds of companies better at relating to one another, and it helps the company. But there are people who don't get it. I, I One interview that I did 
and, and I actually will say the person's name. It was just a disaster. And someone I like tremendously and respect, Chelsea Clinton. I interviewed Chelsea Clinton on stage, and it was like playing badminton by yourself. You know, I just, <laughs> I kept lobbing the birds over the net, but it wasn't the one she was expecting. She had come with 10 answers. Yeah, I know what that's like. Ah. Yeah, that's ah. so hard. And that's really hard. Lovely before we went yeah. on stage, lovely when we got off, but on stage, she had a message. Yeah. And she yeah. just wanted to get her message across. And I think politicians are the very hardest people to play ball with. I think you're right. I think that they probably are constantly afraid that if they let the real them slip out, it won't be the them that'll get votes. Right. It hasn't been the vetted them, the approved right. them. Right. So you should get a politician to do one of these. I shrink from that at the moment. Eventually we will because it's part of our lives and it's part of part of how we how our lives are affected by communication. And we're going to have to deal with that at a certain point. I don't want to be political. That's the thing. I want to try to find somebody to talk with me about what the process is like without needing to make political points. And I'm sure such a person exists somewhere, someone, if not on this planet, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> How does it all this affect you? You you wrote a book, Story of a Happy Marriage. Yeah, this is the story of a happy marriage. Are all the things that you know about empathy and being so evocative about people's feelings in your book and that kind of, does that all play out in a happy marriage? <sighs> I'm not sure I can make that leap. Last night I went out with Jenny Coe. Yeah. The violinist, the violinist, wonderful violinist. Wonderful violinist who has become a good friend. And she said, and this is answering your question in a roundabout way, she said something so interesting. She said, I used to think that love was a thing that you got. I got love here. Now we have this thing and we can both hold on to it. She mm. said, now I think love is an action. I think love is a habit and an effort and a decision, um, and that it, it's all active and moving forward instead of, okay, you know, I have, I have love, I have this thing. It's the thing that you have to live with and take care of. And, and certainly that's a lot about empathy and compassion. I was telling the story to Carl, my husband, this morning, and I said, uh, I said so love isn't a dog that you just get, but then you don't ever feed it or walk it or take care of it. You have to treat it as this living thing that you take care of all the time. And of course, I guess we all know that, but sometimes someone just says it to you in a yeah. way that makes you stop and think about it again. Oh, that's great. You know, I'm having as much fun as you and Tom had, <laughs> and we could go on for hours more. Let's 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 uh, let's stop for now and and pick it up and the next time we get together and talk. But first, I don't know if you know we do these seven quick questions at the end. Where you are you game for this? Sure. Seven yeah. quick answers. All right. Number one, what do you wish you really understood? 
wow, Alan, how many hours do you have? Okay, the first thing that pops into my mind is physics, because we just had a house guest who was a physicist. I'll stick with that. Physics. That's it. It comes up more than once. That's interesting. <laughs> my second answer was God, so oh. please go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, they may be the same thing. Right, after physics, yeah. exactly. So number two is, what do you wish other people understood about you? That I would like to be alone. Oh, that came so good and fast. <laughs> Three, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? I once was giving a talk and someone stood up and said, do you write your novels in order to praise God? Huh. That I was would... really a tough one. I mean, I think that was really the only time I was ever asked a question when I was on stage that I had to stand there and say, ah, uh, and my answer was three days a week. Three days, the other four days you write to please yourself? Exactly. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's interesting. So, this, 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 I'm always interested in this. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Boy, that is an interesting one, and I've had a lot of experience with it in a lot of different roles. If someone is compulsively talking to me as an author, or they're talking at an event where there's another writer and I'm the person who's supposed to shut it down, for the most part, and I've seen so many different writers handle this, I don't try anymore. Hmm. What I try to do is pay attention what I try to do is think, what if there's a lesson here for me, and I'm trying to shut it down? So it's kind of like walking into the wave. Uh, just say, this is happening, this is going to happen, and there really might be something in this for me to learn. That's so interesting to me. That's, I've written about that. That, that. that to me is the secret of talking to somebody. What is there in what they're saying that might change me for the better? Right. No matter how cockeyed it is or, or dis disconnected it seems, something under it may be beneficial to me. And it's an opportunity to love someone. Mm. And that kind of really heroic, when someone's coming at you and they're crazy or they're boring or they're whatever they are, and just to think, how can I love you? That's great. That's that active, active concept of love again. Yeah. Okay. Well, these are supposed to go quickly, okay, but they okay. always they always come out so interestingly in the answers <laughs> that I, that I want to linger over them. So, is there anyone you just can't feel empathy for? Oh gosh, sure. Um, my father was one of the arresting officers for Charles Manson. Oh my God! Really? I have no empathy. Wow. No compassion. Zero. Which doesn't mean that I believe in capital punishment, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, how do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? <laughs> it depends on what the bad news is and how bad it is. I mean, I, I think that basically bad news should be given... Quickly and succinctly, but there there is some news that you absolutely have to give in person. Mm. Okay, the last question. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Um, someone who tried to get between me and my husband. Huh. Uh, I, I once ended a friendship a long time ago 
with with someone who was a friend of both of ours who called my husband and said, you don't want to be with her. She's bad news. And then later apologized to me. And I said, nope, that, that's a deal breaker. Wow. Yeah. Boy, you're full of stories. I know. That's my profession. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Amy. Thank you, Alan. This was great it was, fun. It sure was. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. Ann Patchett and her husband, Dr. Carl Van Devender, who I'll be interviewing in another episode about doctor-patient empathy, are dear friends of mine. And if you're in Nashville, please visit Ann's bookstore. It's called Parnassus Books. You can find all the details about Ann Parnassus and her newest book, which is titled Commonwealth, on her website at annpatchett.com. Anne's best-selling book, Bel Canto, is being made into a film starring Julianne Moore and Ken Watanabe. Renee Fleming lends her voice to the film, and I interviewed Renee in another episode. And if you haven't heard that conversation, you might want to go back and check it out. She has some really interesting stories about Bel Canto and Anne. This episode of Clear and Vivid was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to my podcast for free at Apple Podcasts. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for the newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Next in our series of conversations, the immensely talented writer, actress, and producer Tina Fey talks with me about the mysterious ability improvisation has to bring people together. I believe improv can really work miracles. It can connect people who cannot connect in any other way. It, uh, it, it keeps you tethered. It keeps you present in a, at a time when it's increasingly difficult for us all to be present. We even do a little improvising ourselves in a language no one's ever heard before. Tina Fey, next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe now for free on Apple Podcasts. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support so you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.